the, the part of the poem actually has a reference um, to the bell tolling, which is kind of an eerie, um, totally unplanned, I think, but kind of nonetheless very strange accidental uh, connection to For Whom the Bell Tolls. Uh, so for long, the very word is like a bell to toll me back from thee to my soul self. Uh, dear, the fancy cannot cheat so well as she is famed to do deceiving elf. So, you know, even from um, the, what uh, Fitzgerald himself was reciting, that beauty cannot keep, that's the note on which he ends, um, and what is actually in the Kiss poem that um, is once again a tolling of about tolling your former self back to you. Um, this novel is very much about um, decline, about loss of what used to be yours. Um, this is the story. The tenderest the night is telling someone with tremendous promise uh, early on in his life, but basically losing it gradually. And it is that subtraction, that process of subtraction, uh, things being taken away from him that the novel chronicles. So um, this novel, you know, I'm sure you're sick of this uh, at this point, can very much be read within the paradigm of half and half not. Um, Dick Diver, and I don't think I'm, you know, you probably. Well, in any case, it will be very interesting, very useful to think about Dick Diver once again. If yet another example of uh, someone who's struggling between those two poles, um, have and have not. Um, but um, the novel certainly begins on a very different note, right? It begins on a very glamorous French Riviera, um, and in fact, it's modeled on a very glamorous couple, Gerald and Sarah Murphy. Um, and so, you know, actually, we can't really see um, how magical they were, but apparently they had this circle of friends around them, um, and every day was, uh, was a special day. So, um, but, uh, so the novel was supposedly attributed to that. In fact, there was a show at the Bonnicke, uh, um, I think it was a couple of years ago, called Making It New, um, the art uh, of Gerald and Sarah Murphy, very much a tribute to this uh, very uh, charismatic, couple. Um, but in fact, Fitzgerald didn't have to look too far. I mean, he and his wife, Selda, were quite charismatic as well. Um, and um, certainly very, uh, very much part of that world. This is a, there's a, a PBS um, um, feature on Fitzgerald, and this image was actually taken from it. And this is another um, image of uh, Fitzgerald, his daughter, Scotty and Selda, the French Riviera, 1926. And those were really the productive years. The Great Gatsby came out, came out in 25, and then he was working um, on this when he was at the French Riviera. Um, but as we read on, we know that, in fact, um, that glamour and that magic uh, probably were not sustainable. So this novel is very much about sustainability. Um, how long can that last? Um, and uh, so um, there's, and in fact, it's almost implicit in the way that they were thought of as the golden couple. Um, and um, Dorothy Parker, another well-known novelist, said that they did both look as though they had just stepped out of the sun. So in the sense that they lived in this completely light-filled world. Um, but there's a different way in which being in the sun um, uh, can have a different meaning um, in Fitzgerald's career. 
Um, and it turned out that, in fact, uh, his only successful, hugely successful novel was his first novel. And even The Great Gatsby, as we know, didn't sell all that well um, in his own lifetime. It was out of print by, before he died um, in his relatively short life. Um, so Fitzgerald, in order to, um, just to make a living, um, had to have other jobs. And he was a screenwriter in Hollywood um, in the in the 30s. Um, and so there are a number of books written about Fitzgerald as a screenwriter, um, this um, sometime in the sun. But it pretty much is a kind of an ironic um, reference to being in the sun, as we can see from the uh, picture. It's actually not such a glamorous thing to be a screenwriter in Hollywood. Um, you're stuck with your typewriter. So the phrase that was used uh, for all these screenwriters, including Fitzgerald, including Faulkner, um, as we know, um, for all these people was that they were um, hacks with the Underwood typewriter. Um, they were hack writers, um, not having a lot of control over the material. Um, here is another uh, book about Fitzgerald in Hollywood. Um, and this is a picture of him in the 30s, um, struggling pretty much. Um, there's a very important collection uh, of Fitzgerald's screenplays, um, 2,000 pages at the University of South Carolina. Um, and Fitzgerald himself actually also wrote 17 stories that were published in the Esquire magazine um, in early, um, well, between January um, 1940 to May 41, and then he died after that. So it was actually published after his death, but uh, they're the pet hobby stories. There are 17 stories about this screenwriter, down and out screenwriter in Hollywood. Um, and basically very alcoholic, so uh, quite autobiographical. Um, and so we know that film, actually, uh, was front and center um, for Fitzgerald um, pretty much from the 20s to the 30s and till very much till the end of his life. So um, it, it's, it really is a, a very organic part of his career. So what I'd like to do today is to talk about um, the ways in which cinematic techniques get translated into linguistic and textual um, techniques. And especially I want to look at two phenomena, flashback, um, which is very much uh, something that was um, used in Hollywood films, um, but also montage, something that actually was used more um, in European films, especially in the Russian cinema, but was gradually making its way um, to, to mainstream Hollywood film as well. Um, so the, the, the structure for today's lecture, uh, I'll begin with the publication history um, of uh, Tender is the Night, um, which actually the, it first came out in, mag in the magazine and then in two editions. The first edition has a flashback um, and the, the edition, 51 edition, much later, um, actually uh, turn it into a chronological narrative. And what we see today actually is a restoration to that 1934 edition with the flashback. And I'll give you the details of that. Um, so because the narrative order of Tenderest the Night is in some sense switchable or reversible, we'll be looking at the phenomenon of switchability or reversibility um, in three ways. One is looking at sequence of adjectives, um, how they are reversible. Uh, we'll be looking at the relation between actor and accessory or appendage 
And we'll be looking at the relation between proper nouns and um, active verbs, so a grammatical relation, a kind of reversibility of grammatical relation. And then we'll be looking at um, montage as a technique and the way that that is um, played out in thematic ways. Um, but first of all, the publication history of Tenor's Night, um, we're very used to this. Um, authors quite often would publish first in magazines, so came out in four installments um, in Scribner's magazine, and Scribner's was also a published um, the novel um, in '34. So this is the first edition um, of, of the of uh, the novel, and then uh, I published came out in a, as a Bentham edition, thirty-five cents um, in 1951. So the two editions, um, there's a huge difference between the two editions. The thirty. Four edition, book one begins in 1925, and then there's a jump back to eight years ago, back to 1917. Um, so it begins basically uh, with Dick Diver and his family in the French Riviera, and then it goes back when he was just a young doctor, just the beginning, very beginning of his career, full of promise, 1917, and then it goes back to a later um, point of his life, 1930s. Um, so this is the, um, the, the, the edition that was published, that Fitzgerald originally published. Um, and some critics objected to this out of sequence, um, this not chronological narrative. So when it came out as the Bentham classic, that was switched, and it began chronologically. It began with Dick Diver's early promise as a young doctor, and then it just proceeds chronologically. So, reversing the order um, of the 34 edition um, and eliminating the flashback. So, um, we can talk a little bit. Um, in fact, I would encourage you to think more in section about why it is important for Fitzgerald um, to have the flashback uh, what effect is achieved by having a narrative that is our sequence. Um, and um, I hope that I'll be talking a little bit about that um, in, a, in the lectures as well, but um, I would encourage you to have your opinion, really, uh, about this. Um, but today I want to concentrate, because we haven't read so far into the novel, um, I want to concentrate um, on switchability or reversibility as a relatively small-scale phenomenon, not so much looking at the narrative form as reversible, um, but looking at very minute details um, within the novel that are reversible. So the order of appearance of adjectives um, can be seen as reversible. This is just one example. Mirrors her on the other side. A young woman lay under a roof of umbrellas making out a list of things from a book open on the sand. Her bathing suit was pulled off her shoulders, and her back, a ruddy orange-brown, set off by a string of creamy pearls, shone in the sun. Her face was hard and lovely and pitiful. Okay, so those adjectives don't go together. Usually they are not seen in such close proximity, hard and lovely and pitiful. Um, and just to have those three adjectives there um, lined up in that particular way generates a kind of a mini narrative. So this is one way in which the order um, of appearance of adjectives is 
a case of a kind of a mini narrativization of a description, even though it seems to be just descriptive. Nonetheless, there's an implicit narrative suggested by that order of appearance. And the narrative would be different if we were to reverse the order, if her face were pitiful and lovely and hot, it would be a different narrative. Right? So let's, and Fitzgerald is not going to let those adjectives go, as we'll see. Um, so um, let's, right here, we see this, we also have this additional image um, that she's, um, her shoulders uh, and back are ruddy and orange brown, and there's a string of creamy pearls um, around her neck. Um, when Fitzgerald comes back to this detail, he does something else for that detail. So this is him revising himself all the time, revising his mini-narrative all the time. Nicole Driver, Diver, her brown back hanging from her pearls, was looking through a recipe book for chicken Maryland. Her brown back hanging from her pearls. Before it was the pearls hanging around her neck, all of a sudden, there's a reversible relation between the actor and the appendage, so that it is her brown back that is hanging from the pose. What is suggested? Suggested the pose are quite important, that maybe money is very important. Really, is about whether the money is more important than a human being, um, or vice versa. So, once again, there's more than, in fact, more than just a mini narrative, but a kind of a whole vision of the world, whole vision of the relation between humanity and economy is suggested by that very, very micro detail of a reversible relation between back and pearls. Um, and so, you know, I would say that reversibility is really the key player um, all through the novel. Um, it operates on all scales, it operates between adjectives, operate between different books, you know, the three main books of the novel, and it operates on the shape of Dick Diver's career. So very, very important concept. But just to give you one more example of a very local micro instance um, of switchability or reversibility has to do with the transitive relation between proper names and active verbs. So we know that this uh, character in the novel called Dick Diver um, and here is Rosemary, the actress, talking about what she does and what she has to do. Um, she has a fever, uh, but because the set is very expensive, they just have to, they just have to shoot. Um, so um, this is what she has to do. She has to dive into the water for that, uh, for that episode. One day, I happened to have the grip and didn't know it, and they were taking a scene where I dove into a canal in Venice. It was a very expensive set, so I had to dive and dive and dive all morning. It obviously is not um, a trivial or unconnected detail in a novel where the protagonist is called Dick Diver. There should be someone else diving and diving and diving because of her discipline as an actress. So um, I think that, that it is the, right then and there, the question opens up is who is more capable as of, of, of a kind of sustainable performance? Um, it seems that just the repetition of those three words, dive and dive and dive all morning, suggests that Rosemary is probably going to be 
um, an actress who will have a long career because she's so disciplined and you know just hardworking um, that um, that 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 if she has to do something, she will do it. Um, and so the, the the question then, because she seems to have such a sustainable career, sustainable performance, um, whether Dick Diver is capable of that sustainable performance, the person who has that proper name, whether he can actually live up to the promise of his name, Dick Diver. Um, so um, I want now to really zero in on those two adjectives, hard and pitiful, um, and look at the way Fitzgerald really spins out a whole narrative. Basically, you know, maybe the whole novel um, is based on the interplay between those two adjectives. So let's look at what the hot Nicole does um, and what comes through, you know, what, what kind of story emerges uh, when we go along the axis uh, of Nicole as a hot person. This is what she says to Rosemary. Um, just talking casually, you know, about the, the, the beach and so on and about the tourists. Um, well, I have felt there were too many people on the beach this summer, Nicole admitted, our beach, that they made out of a pebble pile, she considered, and then lowering her voice out of range of a trio of nannies who sat back under another umbrella. Still, they're preferable to those British last summer who kept shouting about, isn't the sea blue, isn't the sky white, isn't little Nellie's rose red? Rosemary thought she would not like to have Nicole for an enemy. Um, so I think that this is a great demonstration of a hard person without this person actually lifting a finger to do a thing, right? It's just the way her mind works. It is her tone of voice. It is the way she thinks about nannies, uh, people in her employ, the way she thinks about people who don't have to claim to the beach that she does uh, is really the speech pattern and the tone of voice of someone who's never not been on the top of the world. Um, and he looks down on everyone and just putting them in the places. Um, so this is, this is the hot Nicole. Um, Ashley gives another meaning to her back hanging from the string of pearls that may be Really, this is what the real Nicole is. It is the fact that she is hanging from the string of pearls, that there will always be a string of pearls for her to hang from, that she can afford to look at the world in this way, look at other people in this way, and speak in that particular tone of voice. That signals to Rosemary, it takes about two seconds for Rosemary to know what kind of person she's dealing with. So sheer, um, capsule summary of what a person is without recourse to any action. Um, and in fact, Nicole doesn't really act until the very end of the novel. And even that is, is not even, you know, especially hot kind of action, although that's debatable. Um, but as is the case with Fitzgerald, um, the word hot is not allowed to stand alone, right? Because we can't forget that, in fact, with three adjectives, hot and lovely and pitiful. So that kind of permutation, it's like a dance, a dance of adjectives. 
um, will keep coming up again. So just a few pages later, another description of Nicole, um, her face, and this time the heart has to be in quotation marks. Her face was hard, almost stern, save for the soft gleam of piteous doubt that looked from her green eyes, right? So it seems that those adjectives are really ingrained in Fitzgerald's mind, that he cannot think about Nicole without using that trio, lovely as well, or maybe just do, uh, just two, two adjectives. They are the, the two um, poles of the spectrum on which um, she shadows back and forth. Um, so because pitiful is so much a companion um, to the adjective heart, let's look at one instance of the pitiful Nicole and see whether or not there is a, an organic connection between the pitiful Nicole and the heart Nicole. And we have to go back earlier, so we have to go back to book, well, go forward to book two, which is backward in time. Um, go back to 1917, uh, when she was a patient, um, and uh, Dick Dive was about to, well, actually, he had not even agreed to, to do anything for her. He was just someone who was being consulted about her. Um, and she was writing to him uh, when she was in this um, mental institution. Dear Captain Diver, I write to you because there's no one else to whom I can turn. And it seems to me if this farcical, misspelled by Nicole, if this farcical situation is apparent to one as sick as me, it should be apparent to you. The mental trouble is all over. And besides that, I'm completely broken and humiliated. If that was what they wanted, my family has shamefully neglected me. There's no use asking them for help or pity. I have had enough, and it is simply ruining my health and wasting my time, pretending that what is the matter with my head is curable. So this is the absolute low point for Nicole. She is by herself, her family is in there, she's in the hands of strangers who are paid to take care of her. Um, and here, who is this person who seems to have his whole life uh, full of promise ahead of him, completely healthy, um, about to, to be launched into this, this great career. Um, so in one sense, it is um, Nicole at her most abject um, that this is someone who really has no future to look forward to, um, has really no hope, really, has nothing uh, that she can claim. Except that, given the fact that we have seen the heart, Nicole, I think that we should also be alert a little bit to the suggestion of hardness, even in this moment when Nicole is most abject. And I think that, in fact, that misspelled word farcical points to a different linguistic usage. Somebody who uses the word farcical actually um, is more in command of the faculties than is suggested by the, uh, by the profession of objection. Uh, likewise, um, it is simply ruining my health and wasting my time. Someone who would use the phrase waste my time is has a different sense of herself um, than is suggested by the profession of rejection. So right there, um, even though it is a pitiful Nicole who is in the foreground, 
um, an element of hotness is never not on the horizon. And I think that it is really that combination that Fitzgerald wants us to see that she can be, she's completely switchable. It, the distance between hardness and pitifulness is tiny. She can just go back and forth. It takes one second for her to switch from one to the other. Um, so one more instance uh, of the pitiful Nicole. Um, and this one is very late in her life, so this is in the present for her. Uh, Nicole knelt beside the top swaying sidewise and sidewise. It's you, she cried, it is you come to intrude on the only privacy I have in the world with your spread of red blood on it. I will wear it for you, I'm not ashamed, though it was such a pity. So the word pity is foregrounded, um, but once again, um, even though this is Nicole out of her mind, Nicole totally out of control, um, Nicole gone crazy again, and therefore um, she has to be medicalized. This is um, Nicole is a candidate for medicalization, but even though she's a candidate for medicalization, um, she's also quite aggressive as well as we can see. She's not so defenseless as not to be able to say some pretty wounding things to whoever would listen to her. Um, so once again, we have that combination. The pitifulness is in the foreground, but hardness is always lurking very, very close to the front, actually, in the background. Um, so it's because of that, I think, it's because the distance between the two switchable platforms is such a small distance that I think that the technique of montage is especially helpful uh, to, um, to Fitzgerald. Um, and as I said before, it, I don't think it was actually the mainstream. Uh, Hollywood uh, technique in, in the 20s yet, although it was um, already theorized uh, by film theories all over the world, so I'll give you one instance of that. But basically, montage is a film editing technique, and um, the two things that, um, that are central to it are dissolved, dissolving from one narrative into another and superimposition of one onto another. So these are the two fundamental elements of montage. And Sergei Eisenstein, um, the Russian great filmmaker, um, in the 20s, um, he wrote a lot on montage. Um, in fact, um, the, I think that this, most people who actually talk about montage go back to Eisenstein's uh, writing in the 1920s. So according to Eisenstein, Montage is the nerve of cinema. In the collision of different narratives, each sequential element is perceived not next to the other, but on top of the other. Okay? Not next, even though, even though they are sequential, even though one comes after the other, and basically, you know, there's no way we can, this is how time works. One thing comes after another. This is the structure of time. There's no way we can completely uh, do without that or completely uh, undermine that. But nonetheless, there's a way of storytelling that makes that sequential appearance almost a case of superimposition. Um, and I think that this is really what Fitzgerald does for a good part of the time in Tender's Night. So let's just look at five or six instances of what I would call different modes of uh, superimposition or super, superimposition uh, being mapped on um, different kinds of thematics that are themselves interrelated. So um, 
war we began with war in the very uh, beginning of this semester and it turns out that war will come back in quite a big way um, it is a novel that really otherwise has nothing to do with war right this is a novel uh, set in the French Riviera and then um, basically in in various civilian and very uh, luxurious settings um, so it really has nothing to do with war except that for some reason <laughs> war keeps coming up uh, in very strange illusions so um, one of the first instances of this and usually it comes out in casual conversation um, so sometimes between the major characters sometimes between the minor characters so this is a conversation between Rosemary uh, and Tommy Bobbin, um, who's a mercenary. Um, actually, I didn't know that that there was that was such an important class of, of uh, that was such an important profession. Uh, but it turns out that, that maybe it was in the in the early nineteenth century, in early twentieth century. Um, so Tommy, uh, because he's a mercenary, he goes around from one place to another. Home, I have no home. I'm going to a war. What war? What war? Any war. I haven't seen the paper lately, but I suppose there's a war. There always is. Don't you care what you fight for? Not at all. As long as I'm well treated. When I'm in a rut, I come to see the divers. Because then I know that in a few weeks, I want to go to war. Rosemary stiffened. You like the divers, she reminded him. Of course, especially her. But they make me want to go to war. Um, Tommy Bobbin might be a mercenary, but uh, he certainly is not just brute strength. There's a lot of psychological subtlety um, at play here. We this is page thirty, so we have no understanding um, of what context Tommy Bobbin is speaking of. All we can say is that it is not an innocent context that he has lots of things that he's holding back about how he feels about uh, the divers it's clear that he doesn't like Dick Diver right you know that I like them especially her um, but also the general sense that you know that just to see the two of them for a, couple, for a few weeks is enough that that is enough to make him want to go to war uh, we don't know what it is about them that would have this kind of effect on him uh, but it never fails um, so right then and there, this is a snake making its way into this paradise that is the French Riviera. Um, the least we can say that even among the close friends and uh, people who are right there, who sit, the, you know, who are there constantly with them, um, that people who supposedly are very good friends of theirs um, have this opinion um, about them. So we have this is just one mystery. Um, that we have to figure out and the details of which we have to fill out for ourselves. And in fact, I would suggest that even at the very end of the novel, I'm not sure that we can completely clear up this mystery. Um, but it's just sitting there and it's the superimposition of love and war um, that creates this particular kind of psychological dynamics uh, between Rosemary and Tommy um, and also between Tommy and the divers. Um, so um, it is it is not even visual so I just want to emphasize that when um, the film technique of, um, of of montage 
is used in a novel. It doesn't always have to be visual. It can just be a case of psychological superimposition. Um, although sometimes uh, Fitzgerald also uses very, very visual superimposition as well, as we'll see. But just to give you one more example of how uh, persistent Fitzgerald is about um, superimposing these two, love and war. So um, they go and they walk out, and it turns out that even here in this um, very, um, in, in this um, seeming very peaceful setting, um, that actually World War I was fought very close by, um, and so close by that the relics of World War I uh, were still there. And this is the spot, actually, where um, the British um, could only advance um, a foot at a time. The resistance um, was so fierce that they can only move ahead one foot at a time, the army. And it cost 20 lives today for them to go forward one foot. So the land here cost 20 lives a foot that summer, he said to Rosemary. She looked out obediently at the rather bare green plain with its low trees of six years' growth. If Dick has added that they were now being shelled, she would have believed him that afternoon. Her love had reached a point where now at last she was beginning to be unhappy, to be desperate. She didn't know what to do. She wanted to talk to her mother. So here, Rosemary is deeply in love. She is in the throes of love. Of, of what seems to be unrequited love for, for Dick. Um, and the necessary background is World War One. That it is the fact that she would have believed him if he had told her that they were being shelled once again, as in World War One. that she would have believed him if he had said that. That is the measure of how much in love she is. So it seems that love is really not a freestanding entity in this novel. It's always mapped against large-scale warfare. We don't exactly know. The logic of that mapping is not clear. In fact, I would also say that this is another of those mysteries that even having, you know, even at the end of the novel, we might not be able to say exactly what the logic is. But clearly, for Fitzgerald, there's a logic that always persistently uh, results in this cross-mapping or superimposition of love and war. Um, one more example, just to see how um, obsessed he is, really, with this kind of cross-mapping. Um, General Grant, so it's not just World War I, uh, but the Civil War. Um, and this is something that Fitzgerald has in common uh, with Hemingway as well. In For Whom the Battle Tolls, we see that the Spanish Civil War and the American Civil War are sometimes cross-mapped, right? Um, in the importance of Robert Jordan's grandfather. Here, for no reason that we can see, um, the Civil War comes into play in the midst of the discussion about World War I. General Grant invented this kind of battle at Petersburg in 65. No, he didn't. He just invented mass butchery. This kind of battle was invented by Lewis Carroll and Jules Verne and whoever wrote Undine and country deacons bowling and Marines in Marseille and girls seduced in the back lanes of Württemberg and Westphalia. Why? This was a love battle. This was a century of middle class love spent here. This was the last love battle. Totally unidiomatic use of the English language. Love battle is not a phrase that anyone else would use. 
um, Fitzgerald uses it as if it were the most idiomatic expression in the world. And that's because in his mind, there is such a tight knit between love and war that it all, it's all, it's, you almost cannot um, talk about one with the, without talking about the other. But according to this um, apparent analysis of war, um, it is really middle class romantic love that is at the back of war. It's a very long causal chain to go from middle class love to trench warfare or to the civil war um, in the US history. It's a very, very long causal chain. We have to fill in lots and lots of relays in order for that causal chain to make sense. But that's what Fitzgerald wants us to imagine, is to imagine all those missing links that he's not showing us. Um, so this is, um, I think that we've seen enough to know that this really is a very significant pattern. Um, not explained to us, obviously, um, but that is one of the, um, the, the kind of the, the, the constants um, in this novel is that um, extreme, extreme uh, conditions of love uh, always require a very violent, large-scale violent background uh, for it to be fully manifested, that maybe its articulation uh, requires some relation to that large-scale event. Um, so I want to um, turn now to um, talk about, uh, we've been looking at uh, the kind of the narrative mapping, right? So a large scale um, historical event that's constantly being summoned and reactivated and brought into the novel. Um, so that's, that's this, this on, a, on, a, on a sort of kind of macro register um, that has the, the micro uh, romantic relation. Um, but it turns out that that combination of love and war can also uh, be played out in very, very incidental moments not involving uh, the protagonist at all, which suggests that um, it is a narrative fabric, it's a descriptive fabric that Fitzgerald is, 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 is it's almost like a stylistic take for Fitzgerald, maybe without even making a huge thematic point about it. Um, that's what his mind refers to. Whenever he talks about any kind of violence, there's also this other element of love that is superimposed. Um, so this is a totally trivial <laughs> incident, except for the fact that it, it shows the same kind of dynamics. At a Pullman entrance to cause of a vivid scene detached itself from the tenor of many farewells. The young woman with the helmet-like hair to whom Nicole has spoken made an odd, dodging little run away from the man to whom she was talking and plunged a frantic hand into her purse. Then the sound of two revolver shots cracked the narrow air of the platform. But before the crowd closed in, the others had seen the shot take effect, seen the target sit down upon the platform. Um, people were constantly getting shot um, in this novel, which is really um, surprising. In fact, we don't expect murder to appear with this kind of regularity in this particular kind of social setting, but it does. Um, so that in itself is a very insistent pattern um, on the part of Fitzgerald. But I want to call attention to this highly cinematic 
moment. Um, the um, the beginning with with just just kind of a you know the usual uh, scene at the train station, uh, people saying goodbye. Um, but already the introduction um, of a textual element that actually could be filmed uh, with perfect to to maximum effect. The young woman with the helmet like hair, a completely gratuitous detail um, that would not have called attention to itself, um, but would not otherwise have called attention to itself, but in this novel, given the superimposition of love and war it does. So it's a helmet-like hair um, that, who's a total stranger to Nicole. Then Nicole has spoken, made an odd dodging little run away from a man to whom she was talking, and plunged a little a frantic hand into her, into her purse, um, is that almost dance steps taken by that, um, by that woman, um, is, 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 is this as a kind of um, dance movement, and then the shot coming after that, as the not uh, predictable, not expected conclusion to that dance movement, that creates this montage effect, right? She's been talking to Nicole. Um, she's making a little run. Um, maybe you know we would expect someone who's making a little run in a train station to go and catch the train, right? That's the most usual context for the little run, except it is a dodging little run. And it turns out that the, the what comes the outcome of that little run is in fact the shooting. So two completely separate narratives being mapped onto one another. The much more standard, unsurprising narrative was saying goodbye in the train station with a totally different story being mapped onto it. And it turns out that the two can actually share a lot of the same visual details unless there's a divergence and the, the violence of that divergence that create that particular cinematic effect. Um, so. I just want to give you one more example of this highly cinematic rendition um, of murder. Um, and it, it, it turns out that Fitzgerald um, is um, especially interested in the, um, the way that the sequence leading up to a murder or the sequence um, by which murder is finally recognized as murder. So here is a description of something that happens in Rosemary's room, hotel room. Um, and it takes a long time to get to the end. <laughs> I think that's the point. So let's follow Fisher in this very, very strange passage. Then rather gradually, she realized without turning about that she was not alone in the room. In an inhabited room, they are reflecting objects only half noticed, varnished wood, more or less polished brass, silver and ivory, and beyond this, a thousand conveyors of light and shadow, so mild that one scarcely thinks of them as that. The tops of picture frames, the edges of pencils or ashtrays, of crystal or china ornament, the totality of this reflection, appearing to equally subtle reflexes of the vision, as well as those associational fragments in the subconscious that we seem to hang on to as a glass filter keeps the irregularly shaped pieces that may do some time. This fact 
my account for what Rosemary afterward mysteriously described as realizing that there was someone in the room before she could determine it. But when she did realize it, she turned swift in a sort of ballet step and saw that a dead Negro was stretched upon her bed. This has got to be the most deferred discovery of a dead body in <laughs> any work of American literature. Um, it seems almost counterproductive um, for the realization on the part of Rosemary that she was not alone in the room to the fact that, yes, there's a dead Negro um, on her bed. Um, why Fitzgerald would want to take that long detour um, to me, actually, once again, is, is not completely, um, it's not transparent. Um, all we can say is that this is a kind of cinematic moment when we sort of know that something is wrong in the room, but instead the focus is kept, it's frozen, fixated, and all these refracting objects, varnish wood, ashtrays, and so on, all these refracting objects that are actually not reflecting the dead body, right? So there's a really weird kind of way in which there are multiple mirrors in the room, all these refracting surfaces, but they're not reflecting the central, the most important, crucial fact in that room, that's this dead, dead body on, on the bed. Um, instead, it seems simply to be a kind of a meditation um, on the way the, the world comes to us refracted, and there are multiple objects to be doing that. Um, just, just, and, and the relation between that and our subconscious and the relation between that and our memory. So almost a kind of a meditation on the way in which our memory is structured by visual reflections. Um, and then finally coming back to Rosemary, and even then repeating exactly the same sequence, right? There's the woman before has this dodging little run before she plunges her hand into um, her purse to pull out. Um, the, the, the revolver. And here, Rosemary is not going to plunge her hand into a purse, but she's going to do a little um, ballet dance, ballet step, before she discovers the dead body um, on her bed. So this is all we can say, really, is maybe just describe and re, um, re-articulate what uh, Fitzgerald is doing. It's highly deliberate, it's highly stylized, it's one of the most stylized moments. Um, consciously, um, maybe even heavy-handedly written, although what for what to what end is not entirely clear, but it's one of the most purposeful moments um, in a novel. And so I think that we're obligated um, to interpret it in some fashion and to attach uh, some degree of thematic weight um, to this um, seemingly um, inexplicable moment. Um, so all I wish is to say that Tennis Night is just a real challenge to us, as much of a challenge as Faulkner's novels are.